0: It's how important it is for us to raise our children in a community and in a context that isn't only racially diverse, but is socioeconomically diverse. That has been so transformative for them and for us. Um, and for us. Um, but, and it's because I've always been in a interracial, multi ethnic, cross class experience, always, my whole life. But I've never been in this experience as a parent. Mm-hmm. So now as yeah. a mother or as a father, we have different questions about life, different feelings about the world, different lenses from which we see things. And I think that um, we're just asking different questions now. And so raising a family and raising our children in a interracial, multi-ethnic, intergenerational, cross-class experience has been probably the most formative thing for them. Yep.
1: <laughs> you got to bring up our fight. I mean, I'm usually right, but that's cool. <laughs> It's not going to happen. Never. No way. Let's go back. Don't share that story. Yep. Hang on. Did I
2: go too fast? You
1: just jumped to purpose, which is you. You're a visionary. A- I see your I'm- connection here. <laughs> Love
2: or work. Welcome to the Lover Work Podcast. This is your boy, Jeff.
1: Oh, my boy. And I'm Andre. Now you
2: can say, like, this is your girl, Andre.
1: Oh, this is your girl, Andre. Maybe
2: we should try that again. Here we go. Welcome to the Lover Work <laughs> Podcast. This is your boy, Jeff.
1: And this is your girl, Dre.
2: Not. Nah. What do you think about that? I don't know. I do like the That is
1: my nickname. I do do like the Dre. I feel like like it it sticks. We're here. We should go with it. We're here. Oh, my goodness. Wow, you just arrived. Dre is here in the house. Let's talk about who we're interviewing today. So,
2: so good.
1: This is a really, really good one. We are interviewing Sandra and Carl Van Opstel. Uh, Sandra is the executive director and co-founder of Chasing Justice, which is a guide for people who want to live a lifestyle of justice. And Carl, well, he describes himself as a nerdy white guy from Wisconsin. No, he didn't describe it. She described him (laughs) in that way. And he kind of owns it, though. He does own it. I mean, all right, Jeff, what should we be listening for? That's so funny. Uh, The first thing.
2: The wing woman. Mm -hmm. Number two, T-O-W-G.
1: Better listen to see what that means.
2: Yeah, you'll hear. And number three, we're going to learn all about cross-cultural marriage.
1: Yes. So here we go. Here is Sandra and Carl.
3: I I feel very strongly I have to take the lead in this one. because Sandra, (laughs) Sandra, she, she forgets some of the details. So... Let's do uh, it. We, we knew each other. Uh, we were both involved in a college uh, organization called InterVarsity in different chapters. We went to school in different states. Um, but we ended up going to the same church. And she was one time singing since she was a, a worship leader at the church. So she was singing and talking about how, you know, God's got to be doing something in my life because I'm over 30. I'm Latino and single. So my family's kind of like, you know, what's up? And, you know, when an attractive woman who has a beautiful voice announces to the church, you know, that she's single, there's like flashing lights that go off, you know, in your head. Um, Unfortunately, other people picked up on this and I kind of missed my cue, but that didn't work out so well. And so then I had an opportunity to step in. And uh, yeah, I I said, you know, I I took her on a date. She actually thought um, I liked this other girl and she was going as my wingman.
1: It was like a double date.
3: Yeah, and she was performing at an art show at Columbia College here in Chicago. And I'm like, hey, you know, some friends are going. You want to go? And she's like, oh, I think Carl likes her. I'm going to go with him just to help him out. And then I invited her out to dinner afterwards without, you know, this other girl or anybody else, you know, of her friends who was there. And I was just very direct with her. I said, hey, you know, I'm interested in you. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah. I think some context is needed for that story. That's why it. it should have been me that went first. <laughs> uh, we're still arguing about it 15 years later, but, um, okay. So, so Carl's seven years younger than me okay. and, um, he was basically 20, I think 23 or 24. Um, and I was like 30 hitting 31, you know? So I'm like, I got stuff to do. I got the, a world to save. I got a revolution to start. Like I'm not messing around. And boy, it really would have been fun to have a spouse. But, you know, at this point I got stuff to do. So I can't really be waiting around for anyone. And I had this one woman in this particular church I was going to, which is very, not, not a place I'd be at now, but, you know, kind of very, I don't know, whatever. So she said to me, you know, like, if you want, You want a man, if you want to have the time to meet someone or whatever, you're gonna have to slow down. You know, you're gonna have to create some space in your life. And I was like, if 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 a man, if if there's gonna be a man out there for me, then he's gonna have to learn to catch up. That was my answer. So so he's you know, he's seven years younger than me. He's basically a nerdy IT white guy from Wisconsin. And I had said, like, oh man, if I'm in, like if I'm working for this ministry that's primarily white folks, like I'm just going to end up with some nerdy white guy from Wisconsin. This is going to be awful. Um, And I'd probably said that like almost a decade earlier. And then sure enough, like there he was. And I was like, oh, this, this could not be, you know, like, so (laughs) I think in my mind, it wasn't like a category. Like I, I was so used to, I'm a very strong person with very strong opinions. I know where I want to go. I know what I want to do. And I think I'm a lot of fun, but I don't mince words. And so I just, particularly in like in church circles, it wasn't like the epitome of like what a woman should be like. And, um, I pretty much scared most of my peers in ministry and most of my peers at church and most of them were white men. So I was just like, forget it. You know, like this is just never going to happen. I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. um, if this is the context I'm going to be in, um, and my Latino parents are, of course, very, very scared at this point because like, what? where did they go wrong that their 30-year-old daughter is still not married off? Um, so it's kind of, that's the context in which we met each other. So there was the girl that I thought he liked actually liked him. So she was, you know, when you're in a room, you could feel like, I have like such a strong, from being in student ministry, so there's a strong sense of the vibes that are crossing a room. So I was like, oh, there's like some strong vibes right here. There's something going on. And I thought he... Must like her because he said, You want to go and see her in this, you know, show. And what it was actually was that she had liked him. And that's the story we found out later on. But I clearly was not wrong. I sensed something was there. It was just in the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> and so when we were there, I was like, Oh my gosh, is this like a date? Is this like, a, you know, because I had been, I was late an hour almost. I literally just jumped out of the shower and changed right before he came. I hadn't combed my hair. Pretty sure I was putting my earrings on in the car. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't like, I wasn't functioning like I was going on a date. I was like, I'm gonna help this guy out, you know, because he's going with this group to this. So at the at the event, I was like, oh, this might this might actually be a date. Is this a date? I don't even know. I hadn't been on one in a decade. So I couldn't recognize what dates looked like anymore. Um and so I thought to myself, okay, if after this event he asked me to go to dinner, it, it's probably a date. And then if he doesn't ask me, it's probably not a date. So that's probably that's pretty much where I was. I was like, oh, I became aware I was in a date during the middle of the date. So, yeah,
3: yeah it takes her some time to catch up with me, you know, yeah. once. In a yeah. now, <laughs> Carla, oh. She
2: was kind of explaining herself as a strong woman that was not like her peers in a lot of She was, And I don't know if that is a good explanation. Is that what attracted you to her?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm attracted to a lot about Sandra. I'm not at all intimidated. I was raised by a very strong single mother who, you know, flies all over the world doing international business. She's got a master's degree, commands attention, you know, not afraid to share her opinion. And so that that's what I was used to. So, you know, when when she first met my mom, after a couple of dates in, my mom, you know, said, oh my gosh, Carl, finally a woman with an opinion. Oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, like, uh, she was so happy to meet Sandra. Um, yeah, I think I wasn't I, was, I was an intimidated or threatened. She, I thought she was great.
1: That's awesome. So how did, I mean, Sandra, were you interested in marriage? Or you were interested in this? I mean, I know your Latino roots and your family wanted you married, but was that something you were interested in?
0: I mean, I think I, by the time you get to 31, I mean, I, I think I was kind of like in an environment where people got married or, or at least attached, you know, like dating or whatever, engaged kind of earlier on. Um, and I think when I was 25, I was like, listen, the next man that walks in that door, I'm taking him home with me. You know, like <laughs> that's where I was like at, like probably, you know, in my mental state, in my, um, you know, like in my own hormone, like just everything. I was like the next person that walks in that's it. This is just, I don't care what people think. This is the... And then by the time I got to 29, I was like, like calmer. I don't know what happened. I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, like I think. I think part of it was I had established a very strong community structure with all kinds of different levels of, and kinds of intimacy. You know, like so there was this, your your close peers and there's like a larger friend group and it's and I think especially because it was intergenerational and it was men and women. I think I I I was kind of like in the calmer period of my angstiness around that kind of like. I just, I really did feel like, well, being single allows me to travel where I want to and do what I want to. And if I want to go live in a slum in Cairo for a summer, I will. And if I want to go and do X, Y, Z, I will. And there's nothing tying me down. So I would say that I, I I, think all of us long for like that person to pick up the phone and call, you know, when something happens, either good or bad. I don't think, I think it took me a long time to find my people, you know, who are the people that I could pick up the phone and just call when something was either wrong or something was painful or so in that, in that season, when I met Carl, I would say I wasn't really looking. Um,
3: Yeah. After that date, you know, I dropped her off back at her home at her parents' house and I said, Hey, I'm interested in you. And she said to me, well, you know, I never really thought of you like that, but I don't have anything else going on. So why not? (laughs) <laughs> yes, it was very romantic. So.
0: so was this
1: the beginning of like a pursuit of her to like win her over to that, like wanting you side or? Yeah,
3: I mean, I, I you know, she, she said to me, it's like, I'm, I'm if we're going to date, like I'm, well, I have a direction in mind. I'm not just looking to, you know, for someone to buy me dinner. And I said, well, good. I'm, I'm not just looking to buy you dinner. Like I have kind of the same objective. Let's see where this goes. So we met each other's families within like the third week. Um, you know our different communities. You know where we worked. Um, you know I, I, I worked at a very close knit IT community at the company I worked with, and they had a date log. So it was, it was on the the network share. So everyone around the country uh, would check up to see if I posted something about our dates and how it went and where I took her and you know how <laughs> that things were is, progressing. I have never heard of that. Have you?
1: No. Uh, I don't even understand
2: what ep- this is. Listen, that's the epitome of a nerdy white guy from Wisconsin. Yes, right? <laughs> yes,
3: yes, yes. <laughs> so no, I think you know we we both had the same intention, and yeah. you know, you know wh- whether or not we ended up on that journey, we started in the right direction of saying this. This is either pursuing towards something, or it's it we'll be friends, and it's going some other way.
2: Now, as you guys kind of got into it, obviously you have different cultural backgrounds. How did? How did that unpack itself? Like, what did? Were there tensions in the middle of that as you're starting to date? I'm sure it's come out at different times in, in your marriage uh, or relationship.
1: Well, she did say she was an hour late on her first date, which <laughs> yeah. I feel like I already that. brings in that Latina vibe <laughs> right there.
3: I yeah, mean, for, yeah for me, Well, for I mean, <laughs> me, on time is five minutes early.
0: You're already feeling it. <laughs> I was working at a at a campus. I, I was living in the north suburbs, and I was working at a campus in in Evanston, Northwestern. And so, part of it was, you know, when you're doing when you're working with students, you're also almost at like they're just, you know, they 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 almost control your. I don't want to say they control, but they they influence your schedule as well. But um, yeah, I didn't care. I was like, oh, I'm coming. This is. I'm just letting you know. And I think I, that was so long ago. I'm sure, like texting. Was that even a thing back then? Probably not. So, um, uh, I'm pretty sure I had a flip phone when this all started. So, uh, if those of you that don't know what that is, you're listening, to this, you can look it up, um, Google. So the multicultural part, tell us about how that. Yeah. Went.
3: So it was interesting because on our first date, um, and I think Sandra mentioned it earlier, she's Latino and I'm biracial, half white, half Caucasian. <laughs>
0: yeah so ah, <laughs> so you guys see what I had to put up with yes, so, I love it um so anyway, um, on our first date that I found out was a date halfway through, we were having um dinner, and I just started asking normal questions that I always ask when I'm with people, you know, like so what do you, you know what would your mom think like we were talking we were talking about family, and I said, well, what would your mom think if you brought home Like if you dated someone from a different culture, I didn't even know he was really liking me at this point. I was just like, this could maybe be a date, but I was just making conversation because that's the kind of conversation I have. Like, what would your family say if you brought someone home from a different culture? And then we talked about it and um, like, what you know, those kinds of things. So I think he knew right away that that was some, I mean, I also was pretty nationally known in the ministry that we worked with uh, as being someone who was committed to both a global, um, cross-cultural experience as well as um, kind of urban justice. So I don't think that um, that that was a surprise to him. but um, yeah, so I think that was the first conversation by the by, the, by May, like a, a month into dating, we he had taken me to the speech in, in Indiana and it was already closed, but we were sitting kind of like sitting down talking about life and I was like, well, I just want you to know that I never want to marry anyone white and I never want to marry anyone rich. And you are both white and rich because he comes from a wealthy family. So I was like, um, I don't want, I don't want my children to be bought one hundred dollar dolls from their grandparents. I don't want. And I just made a list of all the things I didn't want. Um, I was still in that time, I think, also struggling with um, my hate of money. Like I just couldn't reconcile. I couldn't put together um, how there could be people with so much wealth in the context with people with so much poverty and that anything resembling luxury would be appropriate in any way, um, both from my own experience um, and the diversity with, within my fam- extended family. So um, so that's what I said to him. Basically, I was like, this is like a problem for me. And, and so you need to know this now, basically. So we're in a month into dating and we're already having like pretty dis- strong discussions around. And then right around then, one time we had gone out and he was like, is it going to be a problem for you? <laughs> that we're both very direct. So he's like, is it going to be a problem for you that you have to be like my tutor on issues of race? Because mm. I had been like running these programs, like writing on race and um, equity, writing on cross-cultural things, leading pro- urban programs, um, you know, working with hundreds of students, basically um, speaking on the topic. So he's like, is it going to be a problem that you're constantly like having to refer me to books and kind of tutoring me? And I was like, well, if I'm going to have to be your, and also there's, remember, there's an age difference. So it's like, you know, and so Culture,
3: I, age, class. Yeah. So
0: he's like, is, that, is there going to be, is this going to be an issue? And I said, you know, like if I have to be your tutor on everything, it will be a very big issue. Um, but if this is just a, if this is just a topic that you have not had exposure to, or that you don't really understand of the many topics that we will like discuss and, you know, find a mutual, um, I guess, pathway forward, then, then I don't mind that. That's fine.
2: Do you feel like, um, in response to that, especially like you talked about, you you just brought up a whole bunch of things all at once, money, (laughs) uh, education of, of all the things basically, um, 15 years later, are there things that you see differently on? in the midst of those conversations and be, be, I mean, partially just because of upbringing and, and background and storyline. And has that become a, a constant thing? Are you okay with that? Or I asked like four questions all in one. Sorry yeah, about yeah. that. No,
3: so so what, we, what we tell people is that be, because we were so different in so many ways, um, I, I think the, the one similarity that was kind of bang for us is that we both communicate pretty directly. Um, but we are so different in so many ways that we were engaged for nine months and we dated for nine months. and the nine months of dating was like a fight every day. like we there, there was some kind of disagreement um, or, or argument or confusion or you know whatever clarification around something just because there is so much we were sorting through individually and then trying to come together you know with different perspectives and all these areas and, and communicate well and figure this out. Um, we had a mentor who told us that you know when when you get married, it's not, you know, 50% of one and 50% of another becoming one. It's a hundred percent because you're a whole person, whether or not you're married, <laughs> and another whole person becoming a new whole person. So you're gonna start to look more alike just because you're you're merging together with your lives. And so I, I think there's a lot of areas where we've come to understand each other differently on, where we've kind of corrected ourselves, like, oh, I I see why you're, you know, you're coming with that perspective. And then having the shared experience as spouses, it's it's no longer me having an experience and telling Sandra about it. We're we're living it together because our our entire lives are shared.
1: So now you have kids. You have two children, is that right? Yes. Okay. And what's their ages? They're both five. Both they're twins? Uh,
0: so there's a story behind that.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we, we have a biological son and a foster son. Okay. okay. And our foster son, uh, soon to be adoptive son, Lord willing, once the courts open back up after COVID, uh-huh. um, is two days younger <gasps> than our biological son. Wow. So we wow. have kind of surprise twins, you know, halfway through their lives.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So now you are raising biracial children. Is that
0: right? Yes. We're raising our son, our birth son, sorry, who is, uh, you know, uh, Latino Polish. And then we're raising our adoptive son who is African-American and white. Um, and we're doing that in a, in a neighborhood that is, um, primarily black and brown. So, and in a community that's primarily black and brown. So we're navigating all the things about Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we understand our what we have brought to this family, and mm-hmm. then how do we create an openness in our family to bring in um, what all of our family members will need? Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you're such a leader in justice issues, and and I mean, even your whole work, everything you're doing. So, how have you been? Working on trying to raise kids who care about justice?
0: It's interesting that you asked that question because I, I promised on uh, my I have been having a lot of reflections about that. So I promised mm-hmm. um, on IG that I would go live today and share some of my thoughts oh, on that. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's interesting that you're asking. And the reason is because I think that's the, that's the most important job that I do as a person who um, is trying to a, create a world where all people can flourish. I think that as a person, um, from my own, uh, family's history, from my faith convictions, that, um, that I really believe we, we can do better. The, the primary place I actually think about that is in my parenting and in our parenting and in what we model, not only for the children that we raise, like in our family but for children around us and for youth around us because I, I think that so much of how people are formed is caught by um, by watching mm-hmm. and just seeing what is what is done and what is not done So I mean I think part of it is um, you know we take our kids along on the journey with us mm. um, and our own under like, they each have a different racial and cultural identity as our children. And each of their cultural and racial identity is different than each of ours. So part of that is giving them the space and allowing them to ask questions around racial and cultural identity and not shutting them down. So I grew up in a world where if you said, Oh, look at that beautiful black woman in the store, you know, like, mom, look at her, your mom would be like, Don't say that, you know? Yeah. Like, what correct. did you say that was yeah. wrong? You know, nothing. So I think that. Um, allowing them the space to be curious about different cultures and um, just different peoples. I think that's really important for us to do is to say, yes, you have identified there's a difference and there's nothing wrong with identifying there's a difference. And then helping them uh, navigate what they understand about the value of people through that difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is I, I read an article pretty recently, like in the last six months or so that talked about how, you know, the last generation of parents spent so much time helping their kids be successful that they forgot how to, t- to teach their children to be kind. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really struck me. And I thought like, that's the most important thing is for your children to be kind, like mm-hmm. for them to be good, um, not at what they do, but in who they are becoming and who they see others becoming. So I try to really work with our, like, you know, things happen around the house all the time. So I'm like, you know, I ask them like, was that kind, was that a kind thing to do? No, it wasn't kind. Okay. Well, (laughs) could you have done differently. So it's it's in the everyday, you know Um, very practically. I think um, we, we take them with us on events that we do like a March, anything we do, we take them with (laughs) us. And we have discussions that are appropriate for their age. And I think that uh, I find that probably more difficult um, that I don't as a parent process what I'm going through with my kids in a way that is inappropriate for their age and their stage of life. Mm -hmm. Um, I think actually that's the biggest warning I would give parents that are trying to raise children that care about issues of justice is that we don't project our angst onto our children because mm-hmm. they're not developmentally in the space to handle the level of angst that we go through. Yeah. We want to inform them, we want to mm-hmm. uh, pray with them, grieve with them, name the things, but I I do believe that we're not if we're not careful, we we could either make children incredibly anxious mm-hmm. or we could they'll just say, well my parents are too, you know. They're just too much they're extra, you know, like we don't need to and they'll actually just turn away from the message that we have. So, and I'm I I de- definitely think I'm a mother that could be extra. Um <laughs> so I just, you know, if I want to cry or scream about something at a level that I need to, I just take it to my room and do it in my room and then when I talk to them about it, I I share with them at a level that they're ready to hear with their little hearts. Um mm-hmm. and so that's one of the things. And then the other thing is just I think we've the other thing I could think of is just it's how important it is for us to raise our children in a community and in a context that isn't only racially diverse but is socioeconomically diverse. Mm-hmm. That has been so transformative for them. Mm-hmm. And for us. Um, and for us. Um, but and it's because I've always been in a interracial, multi-ethnic, Cross class experience always my whole life, mm-hmm. but I've never been in this experience as a parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now, as yeah. a mother or as a father, we have different questions about life, different feelings about the world, different lenses from which we see things and I think that um, we're just asking different questions now and so raising a family and raising our children in a interracial multi-ethnic intergenerational Cross class experience has been probably the most formative thing for them.
3: Yeah, I, I think of two stories that I'm, two experiences I'm grateful for that kind of helped shape our understanding of this. Is one is uh, Sandra and I were doing a training in Mexico. Um, I think she was doing the training. I think I was just around. And um, was it Sal Cruz? I can't remember who it was, but you know, a question. All these kind of justice community development leaders were asking him this this, uh, mentor is a mexican leader in a community that was pretty much a garbage slum uh in in mexico and they said you know how do you you know how do you kind of guard your family and your your work and he like he was confused he didn't understand the question so they asked it again and he's still confused he's bilingual so he said can you ask it in spanish like maybe there's some kind of translation issue and the the people coming from North America were asking a question pretty much like, how do you do the ministry of this hard cross-cultural justice-related work and still protect your family? And he's like, I, I, I don't even think I understand the question. Like th- my family and my work are they're together. Like I, there's no separation. Like mm-hmm. we live in this community. They're, mm-hmm. they're around everything all the time. And so I think the having me understand that there does not have to be in some ways, nor should there be a dichotomy between Kind of the justice community development work that we do and the raising of our family. They, they need to be integrated. Um, and the second story we used to go to a church that had a warming center. It's like a non overnight homeless ministry to people in our neighborhood in Chicago. And, you know, one of the things I asked her, I said, you know, what is a, what is a great way to start loving homeless people in our neighborhood? This is, I, I'm, this is new to me. I don't didn't see homeless people where I lived prior. And she said, you know, one of the hardest things is that homeless people, when they're begging on the streets, people avert their eyes. They don't look at them. They actually turn and pretend to turn on the radio or pretend they're on a phone call just so they don't have to engage it. And so they feel less than human. So even if you don't have any money, you know you have no cash, everything's credit card, you know, whatever, you can at least roll down the window and say, hey, I don't have anything, but what's your name? Mm -hmm. And and, and usually what we've learned is we keep gift cards, you know, something like in our cars or cash, just so we have something to give. We ask them their name. And I remember one time I, I gave money to someone, the light was about to turn green, so I'm in a hurry. And my son says, but Papa, you didn't ask his name.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: and so it, it, was, it was a realization for me like oh wow like they're, they're paying our kids are paying attention to what we're doing
1: mm-hmm.
3: and 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 that matters and so I'm, I just I'm grateful for the fact that we've had community members who have walked this journey with us who can help but encourage us to do the right thing and to model it for our kids
0: yeah and I think in, even in that like simple practice um, a, a couple I don't know maybe even a year later we were driving through that same viaduct the same area And I was in the car and I was doing whatever I was doing in the front seat. And then all of a sudden I realized my, my son had rolled down the window in the back and he had stuck out his hand from the window. And he's like, Hey, and he's like, Hey, hi, I'm Justo. What's your name? And the guy's like, I'm Bob. And he's like, Hey, Bob, I'm Justo. This is my brother, Terry. And that's my mom, Sandra. (laughs) And he's like, how are you doing? He's like talking to this guy. He's like fist pumping him, you know, and and honestly, everything in me was like, oh my gosh, I should have locked their windows. Like, I don't know, you know, like Mm -hmm. as a, something happened in me. And, and then I was like, and then of course, in my mind, I was like, that's a bad thought to have. Like, I'll take that later to spiritual direction, you know? And then, (laughs) um, but I realized that it was very normative for him to interact with all kinds of people. And and that it wasn't just like, oh, there's a poor person. Mm-hmm. It was like there's a person, mm-hmm. and I'm I w- I want to connect with that person, introduce them, like introduce yeah. them to my to my family. So anymore, it's not like we're we're not facilitating those things. They really are. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking out. So I think you can take a practice like that, and probably, you know, another thing was we were in we were speaking at an event in Colorado, and there were all these people in the streets and like the people with the, the colorful vests guiding, uh, uh, walking traffic. And my son was like, Oh mom, is this a protest? <laughs> and I was like, is this a March? And I said, no baby, it's not a March. And he's like, well, where's the March? And I was like, we're not here for a March, you know? And it was, it was a Christian event, you know? And so, and then what I thought was, Oh, when my son sees a bunch of people of faith gathered in a crowd, his, expectation is that we're marching about something. So he's five. So what Mm -hmm. does that shape in them as they grow up in that kind of environment that part of your civic duty, part of your faith responsibility is to be a person that raises your voice on behalf of others who aren't being heard. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, he's been going to marches since he was five months in my womb, you know. Um, and and he'll keep doing it. He gets upset this time because you know because of COVID and he has asthma. and We couldn't take him. Um, but I think there's there are lots of things we can do. I, I think part of it, the way I think about it, for anyone, not just our kids, but for any of us, informing that is a, is that we form a lifestyle of justice. Like we we form mm-hmm. an an integrated lifestyle of justice. Not just justice is about Tweeting or speaking mm-hmm. or using words, or justice is about um, who I'm in proximity with, or justice is about how I spend my money. Because I think all of those things are it's about where you shop, it's about how you spend your money, it's about how you share. Um, and so we try in the area of like finances, in the area of relationships, in the area of um, how we use our voice, why we chose to live where we live. All those things I think are we're, we're attempting, we don't have the answers, but we're just attempting to live our convictions around flourishing for neighbor in a way that is integrated.
2: A hmm. um, couple, I want to dig down a couple things that you mentioned first um, you were talking about as you are raising your kids. Uh, I want to actually, I, this is what I, I wrote down that you said, how do we understand what we have brought into this family, I think is the quote that I wrote down. I think that's an interesting place to start. I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. Like before you start educating your kids, understanding who you are and your history, right? Is that, unpack that
0: for us. Um, I think for me, it means um, understanding, like I come to a, relationship or to a family with a set of values that are generationally ingrained. They're like, how, how do you raise a child? Who gets to decide where they go to school? Just you and your spouse? or your whole family. Cause that's what we do. You know, like everybody weighs in uh, when my niece went away to college a year ago, it was like, well, we, all the uncles and aunts had an opinion, you know? Um, and, and part of that is because we share in the raising of a child, we share in the financial burden of a child, you know, like whatever that the cost of that is. So there are very tangible ways that we're connected for cultures, you know, three fourths of the world's cultures um, that are more communal that experience is so drastically different than, um, than how it is in a kind of individualistic. You know, you're responsible, personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. You're responsible. You could tell your parents like, well, you know, it's my life. I could do what I want. You know, that that would never happen in our in our context. So I think knowing that I'm coming in with those values, um, it, it shapes you know how we want the identity of our children to be. And I'll, I'll use this. You know, my my niece, one of my nieces, when she was going away to school, I said to her, you know, I know that it's really stressful that all of us are involved and we all have opinions. And I know it's really stressful. (laughs) You may feel like your parent, your mom is being like a helicopter parent, but you have to understand that being Latina and she's Afro-Latina. And I said, you have to understand that being Latina is not just about the foods that we eat, or the T-shirts that we wear with our ethnicity on it, or you know, all those kinds of things that are popular to do right now around race and ethnicity—it's about a way of doing life. And so, this is the family we're born into. This is the way we love you. And I know it's hard sometimes. So you sh- you should feel free to talk. You know, like share with us how you're how it's impacting you. It's not out of—we're not trying to control you. We just we're it, we're gonna we're gonna family differently than your white friends are gonna family. Hmm. Um. So I think that knowing what we're bringing in is like, I'm bringing in a set of values around money, around community, around decisions. Um, And I'm also coming in with my own identity baggage. So as a white presenting Latina um, who was navigating a very white um, suburban upbringing, there are certain things that happen for me that that trigger me. And I was Spanish speaking before I was English speaking. So there's all these things I come with to my relationship, which has caused a lot of problems, actually a lot of tension in our marriage. Um, and there are things that I come with to as a, as a parent. And now I'm raising a child who is clearly white presenting, you know, Latino. Um, but you know, he's going to have his own little journey in, in a mostly black and brown neighborhood. So, whatever that journey is going to be, it's going to be different than mine. And I have to help him navigate both his racial identity and privilege and his cultural identity and the disconnects he might feel with his, with the larger white, uh, you know, American society. Um, so, yeah, I think if you just know what you're bringing in, you can be able to
3: navigate it. Yeah, and like, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm white and I've been white my whole life. So I'm like really, really, really good at being white. Mm. And um, even when I'm not, I, I represent something, you know, in our broader community. I'm often TOWG, the only white guy. And so that that has impact that represents something, whether or not I'm intending it. Um, and so, you know, recognizing that and how that's impacting our relationships and our kids' relationships and stuff is very important.
2: You were referring earlier, like, you know, when you guys are dating, you're like, I don't want, in in short, like you don't want what he was bringing to the table inside. Oh no, I did aspect, not want right? it. So then, how do so, you mesh that? Yeah, how does
1: that? How
2: do you? That mesh probably has his, to keep coming out, right?
0: I mean, because yeah, I mean, part of it had to do with where I was in my own in my own journey, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I was once having a conversation with a friend of mine who's an Asian woman who also married a white man. This is before we were dating with anyone, and we're like, oh man, we would never want to marry someone white because we're we're so we're already so racially ambiguous that if we marry someone white, our children are going to look white, mm-hmm. and that's not what we want because then they're going to forget their heritage. Mm-hmm. So this this battle of like they will they will have racial privilege but they will have cultural distinctives that somebody will try to erase like some of carl's family members who have said to me like well sandra's just like us you know she's not different she's well traveled and she speaks many languages and she's well educated and she's all these she's just like us you know and in reality i my family's experience was nothing like their experience so it erases everything that happened for me as a child, everything I saw my parents go through, everything I had to go through in the suburb that I grew up in, like it erases all of my pain, which is part of what's transformed me. Hmm. Um, so I think the reality is, you know, you fall in love and you meet someone and you just know you're going to have to work with it. So I think part <laughs> of it was, and then I thought, well, this is fantastic. If I, if I marry a white man with money and I have white children and we have money and education and wealth, we could like we could take over, you know, like, and nobody will know, you know, because so, so, Just you know, fund so I, everything. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. So one of the reasons I named our son, Justo, when our, uh, when he was first born was because I was like, this is fantastic. Justo Alejandro Ostrowski. He's going to get the Latino vote. He's gonna his mom's a pastor, so he's gonna get the evangelical vote. He's gonna get the women's vote because I'm his mom, and he's gonna get the Catholic vote because Ostrowski. So I was like, I mean, it's gonna be fantastic. Ostr- uh, who's Ostrowski for president? You know, she has high ambitions, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, but in my mind, I'm like, this could be like a covert operation where um, <laughs> you know, you raise your children, and and, and in all reality it is because. The, the fluidity that I have to move to code switch from white suburbanism mm, to yeah. to urban settings to even global settings because again I'm look racially ambiguous so even in the Middle East or in other places it's been very easy for me to navigate mm-hmm. um, I'm bilingual I speak well, actually three languages I've studied more so I have an ability to to cross culture all those things I feel like they weren't on accident and even though they were painful. Um, with my background and my struggle and the things that I see from my location always being so incredibly different than Carl's and with Carl's background and his giftings and his personality and his generational wealth, I just feel like, oh, we could do something, Mm -hmm. you know, like, (laughs) um, I, I, it just, it feels, it feels like uh, secret weapons, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. Who's still for president?
2: Uh, yes. It's interesting Here you talk about this. I mean, at, my story resonates very much with Carl's story. Uh, but what's interesting. Good looking
3: white guy from Wisconsin? I had no idea. Michigan, Michigan? but not that far off. Not oh, really. close, yeah. close. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: but Andre, it's interesting. She, you guys don't know her that well, but she, um, she was born in Bolivia. She she Spanish
1: is my first language. Yes. I'm a white presenting Latina. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm white. That is I mean that like, has Latina all in her blood. And
2: Dutch in her blood also. You know, so it's like this funny, like people don't she um when I when we first got married, her mother made me read this book called Third Culture Kids to understand her background and um, which is a, a very unique storyline that's not common, honestly. Um, and uh, so it's interesting hearing a lot of the cultural tensions you guys have have wrestled through. Especially, and ours hit a lot in in our dating Literally relationship. Really,
1: every single
0: one that you said.
2: Yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> it's interesting hearing.
0: Yeah, that. it's it's interesting because there, there's a lot of books that um deal with I think. There's not a lot. There are some books that deal really well with cross-cultural tension. And there are some books that deal really well with interracial marriage. And we've done a lot of counseling, premarital couples, groups, counseling for folks that are um, interracially married, cross-culturally married, same kind of situation as yourself where it's the different culture, but same um, ethnic heritage and Mm -hmm. same kind of, you know, um, so I think what's been, what's interesting is to Find an ability as for us as a couple to say all of these things are in place. And our family is many different races, many different cultures, our extended family, um, many different socioeconomic locations. So, how can we learn how to understand how our location has shaped us? And so, an example would be like I'm I'm my father is Argentine specifically, my mm-hmm. mother is Colombian. Well, Argentine and Colombian cultures are incredibly different, Mm -hmm. but with my father's Argentineness, with his conspiracy theories and more (laughs) socialist perspectives and all those kinds of things, it raised me a certain way to think about, uh, gave me a certain critique on government, on all these different Mm -hmm. things. Um, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, an eight with a seven wing. I'm an ENFP, which means I'm a highly relational, highly intuitive, you know, kind of futuristic thinking person. and Carl is, you know, a, a white guy from a family of educated, wealthy folks who grew up, um, and he has his own immigration. Exp- you know, his family's on his Polish side, but he's an ISTJ, an ESTJ on the Myers Briggs. So he thinks in spreadsheets and um, and projects and he's a one on the Enneagram. So he's like trying to be the good kid. And I'm trying to tell everybody F you all the time. So like, we're total opposites, you know? (laughs) Um, so I think in in our, our you have another one and eight together.
2: Unusual. Yes.
0: Yeah. So, so all those things make it for a relationship in which we're always saying there are going to be differences pretty much on every single thing we encounter. Yeah. I walk into a, conference, a room, a space. And I'm thinking, who can I trust? Who will actually hear me? Um, will my voice matter? Um, what kind of therapy will I need when I leave this space? Mm -hmm. And Carl walks into a room thinking, this is fun.
3: Everyone should like me. I'm a likable guy. I'm a
0: likable guy. Um, because his experience and his personality are different than mine. So I think, um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, oh my gosh, the inclusion paradox. It's a book on cross-cultural, um, uh, collaboration in the workplace. I forgot the Andres author. Tapia. Andre Andres Tapia. He writes about how like people of color, when they encounter differences in the workplace, they actually lean into the difference because they, they assume that difference is going to be there. So they literally almost in their posture lean into the difference. Whereas white American culture um, and especially the more the more woke we try to be, the more fragile we actually are because we're so afraid to make any mistakes on anything. So we actually would lean back. White folks would lean back in a mm. in a cross-cultural situation, in a, in a conflictual situation. And the person of color continues to lean forward and the per- white person can easily lean back until you're literally pushing them across the room. And the person <laughs> of color is like, why won't they engage me? Why don't they love me enough to engage me? And the, and the white person's just like, oh my gosh, maybe if I just like lean back a little bit more, they won't notice that, you know, this is happening. Um, so he, he writes, the, the whole book is fantastic, but I think that's kind of what we've tried to avoid doing in our marriage is, um, you know, if, if we're going to lean forward, we're trying to make a commitment not to lean back. Mm -hmm. or lean back enough for that person to say what they need to say and then turn it around. So it's more like we're trying to dance. We're just trying to say, okay, I'm going to leave you this spot. Um, But you know, it's, it's hard. And I think if you expect there to be differences, then you can find a way forward. But if you want to ignore the differences that are there, whether in personality, socioeconomics, racial, cultural, then you really will never get anywhere because you Mm -hmm. haven't acknowledged the very thing that's causing the problem
2: so in the midst of all this there's like your family's a great example of this because you're in the process of adopting another culture into the midst of your family and so it's creating a i don't know if you would determine transcultural family or <laughs> i don't know what term you you might use multicultural multicultural family yeah. um is that ultimately better you know like it, h- how do you walk forward in a way where there's a deeper understanding of all the cultures or is it, is it forming these n- a new shape of a culture that is called your new family
3: yeah you know, i think i think one thing sandra says often is you you can't apologize for who you are because mm-hmm. so much of who you are is just genetic and from your family from your culture from your social location and you you couldn't control most of that you know, for the first couple of decades of your life, at least. <laughs> Even later in life, there's still stuff that you can't change. So I think there, there's, you know, I wouldn't say anything is better because who, whoever, you know, God has made you to be, whoever you are, all those kind of workings of your life, that's who you are. Mm. So mm. In, in every part of us, there are things that need to be celebrated and are good. And there are parts of us that need to be corrected and, and molded into something different. And so I think, you know, for us, that's a constant journey for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the strengths we have is that being in our community, we have lots of people we can go to for questions, um, because they, they've done this before, you know, even, you, you know, for many mm-hmm. generations in some case. And so understanding ethnic identity development, uh, you know, cultural development, one of, one of Sandra's Twitter friends, she just said, listen, if you're going to, if you're going to adopt a child who's black, you have to make him a sweet potato pie. Like that's just, it's unacceptable. If you don't, you're depriving him <laughs> of his cultural heritage you know, if you don't do that, so it's 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 hearing those things and recognizing, okay, I like to bake. I've never made made one of those, but I I got to get cracking. Um,
0: and I think on the on the also maybe I don't want to say well, yes, it is more serious. On the more serious, yes, <laughs> more uncomfortable side, we have to recognize that we live in a racialized world, and so regardless of what your family looks like, you know, that doesn't give you a ticket for anything. You know, like. Uh, We live in a racialized world and Michael Emerson, who's a sociologist in divided by faith says living in a racialized world means that uh, a racialized world is a world in which race matters for life experiences, life opportunities and relationships. Mm -hmm. And that is the reality of the world that we live in. And so I could be whatever culture I am. Our son, um, Terry, whose dad is like, who's African-American, a very dark black man. His mother's white. Terry is the same color as our son the same exact color. Mm -hmm. Now he might have curlier hair, different features, you know, like he might, we don't know what he's going to look like when he grows up, but it's not that he, he could be, I don't think he'll be white passing, but he could be like, I don't know, Puerto Rican. I mean, who -hmm. who knows what people will think he is, but the reality is he comes from a history and a legacy that's important for him to know. Mm -hmm. It's important for him to see himself as a part of the Black community it's important for him to advocate for the black community because he will be probably in some spaces more accepted. Um, he will do that. Like that's mm-hmm. just our expectation um, that he's going to notice it. So if I tell my son, uh, my son, Justo, well, you know, so we talk about like, well, this is what's happening with black people around. I he's like, and I say, I'll ask him, well, who do you know that's black? And he's like, he names off all our neighbors that live upstairs. He names off people at church. And, and then I say, and Terry. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, Terry's not black. You know, and he kind of yeah. laughs. I'm like, yes, Terry's black. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a part of their orienting themselves, not only in their own cultural richness, but in their, in the heritage that we have inherited in this country of being a racialized country. Mm -hmm. So it very much matters to me as a parent of a black son that, um, he understand his blackness regardless of his hue and that he engage in what it means to be an advocate for his community in that. Um, and I think that the relationships are the things that have most impacted us. So a friend of ours told us like, oh, she's married to an Asian man. And She said, one of my family members has never seen an Asian, like a non-white person before, like a small child. So the minute they saw my husband, they were like scared because they had never seen an Asian person in, per- you know, like in, in the flesh. And so we started talking about how how much the fact that our our family and our children are growing up in a multiracial environment, how impactful that is for them. But it's not enough just to raise them there. We have to interpret for them. We have to ask questions to them and we have to create spaces where we can actually na- navigate the reality of our racialized environment. So whether that's reading children's books to them. I think for, as and, and because my my location is as a vocation as a pastor and as a justice ad, faith ad, advocate is that we do that even as we read scripture, that we are mm-hmm. not just like ignoring the fact that Moses and his brother were from different ethnic groups or that, um, you know, Ruth and Naomi were from different ethnic groups or that Esther was actually white presenting, you know, like we talk, talk about all that, you know, um, and that it's important for them to see that their faith heritage is actually incredibly diverse and very brown, um, because it's not what they're receiving in the little booklets that they're getting and their, you know, in their faith experience. So, um, I think the racialized part is more important, um, to how we're navigating our family. Um, because again, in our extended family, like cousins, all the cousins, they go from like blondest hair to crystal blue eyes, all the way to very dark skin and, and very curly hair. So all of us are there um, in this interracial but Latina Mm -hmm. mixture cultural reality.
1: Let me end with our final question. And it's the question we ask every couple that we interview and kind of the foundation of this project. Is it possible to change the world, stay in love, and raise a healthy family?
3: It's super hard um it 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 is so just anybody listening this it you're signing up for something hard just mm-hmm. to prepare you for it. Um, there's the weightiness of all of those things in your emotional health, in your you know relationships at school church, family, you know whatever um, it it's it it takes a lot out. There's a lot of withdrawals for all of those things um so. As you prepare your life, you know, and not not all things are controlled by us. We know as humans, but as as you prepare for what you can, you know, one of one of the wisest things one of Sandra's mentors has said as a mentor couple, they said, you know, we didn't have kids for the first several years of our marriage, and we made a lot of deposits into our relationship. Um, And ever since we had kids, we've been making a lot of withdrawals. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess as, as you think about ways, what's helpful for us is thinking about ways to make deposits. Like, where are we? not just catching up for the day and not just making sure the kids have food and, you know, get off to school or whatever, but what ways are we depositing into each other's experiences? Mm -hmm. Because there's so much demand, you know, all around us in various areas.
0: And some of the ways that we do that is we have, like, we we see a marriage, like a, a therapist together because even we didn't like sense there was, pro- well, we didn't sense there was like a problem, but we were like, there are always problems. So yeah, yeah. let's like get a baseline situation here on what's happening. And then, and we just enjoy it so much that we still go about once a month or once every six weeks, just to check in and see if we're communicating well and how we could be better. Um, So therapy, I think is good community, like people that know you and speak into your life and, and ask you like, I mean, I've had, Friends that are you know kind of couples around us that have asked us like, how's your sex life? How are you guys doing? Are you finding time for that? You know, especially during quarantine, man, your kids are there all the time. So, um, yeah, so
3: someone someone posted, <laughs> you know, during quarantine, there's gonna be a lot of babies. And someone else responded, yeah, a lot of first babies, not you know second or third <laughs> no, or babies. we have
0: already been through. Uh, so so yeah, I think that's and then we take a oh, we take a twice a year we go for a weekend where we do just do like a reflection retreat and we go and like think about our year, kind of plan the next six months, think about what we might want to do, look at our career, like kind of a goal setting type thing. We're gone for two nights, three days. And we
3: don't talk to each other except for like evening meals.
0: Yeah. So, and and um, it's hard with 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 those of you that have foster children because you have to have special people like that are credentialed to watch your kids. But we we think it's so important that we're like, yes, take our kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think that um, finding a rhythm discussing a rhythm together of a what the week looks like that would be good for your marriage and for your family. Um, I think all those things are very important. I don't like doing that. Like, that's not my favorite thing to do. Actually, we have a lot of stress and conflict around the calendaring. But in the end, I'm like, I'm so glad that we did that. So um, whenever Carl's like, let's look at our calendars. Like everything in me like starts to shut down. Like, he's going to take time away from me. That, that's how I am. I'm like, I'm trying to do the revolution. I can't, you know, you know, and he's like, you need to like, stay home. You need to be home. You know, you need to like, we need, we need a date, you know, we need to, so I think, um, really, I think having, being able to be sensitive to one another in that and knowing that even if it's not your favorite thing to do, it's ultimately the best thing to do. And you didn't even know you, you needed it. So those are some of the things that we do. So I think it's really hard, but I think that, I mean, we're still in love, hopefully.
3: Yeah, very much. <laughs>
0: I love it. Hey, when
2: you say I'm trying to do the revolution, what does that mean to you?
0: I mean, like, there's just stuff to do. You know, there's um, there are people to mobilize. People, I think people right now, especially with everything that's going on in our world, I think they want to do something different. I think they want to live differently. I think they want to spend differently. I think they want to think differently, but they they don't know how. And so mm-hmm. I think my personal... Goal, especially for chasing justice is just to provide pictures of like these are people that are just doing it like in everyday life they're just they're not superheroes they're just making some decisions in their life that are actually impacting communities and making change so we have tons of people that call us just friends family members neighbors people need stuff like so there's always a need and I'm just like yes I'll go like what okay and an example is <laughs> an example is I promise the last one an example is a couple every Friday I have a happy hour with my friends. So we send each other a drink. We decide what we're going to drink together. We have happy hour from four to five. This is women across the country that are doing justice work that we're all, we've been on a couple of trips together from four to five. And then at five o'clock, we like put a movie in for our kids and order a pizza. And then Carl and I just hang out on the deck, you know, but that day I left the office after I had finished my paper I was writing for class and a woman in our community, in our neighborhood, who's an immigrant mom, single mom with three children, didn't look right. She didn't look well. This was the after, This was the day after the sh- the week of the shooting, mm-hmm. or the oh, sorry, the week of the um, of of what happened uh, in Minneapolis with George Floyd. So she didn't look well, and so I started talking to her, and then. Carl, when I got home, was in the front lawn, which he never is. And he's like, I'm gonna take the kids to go drop off these cookies for a neighbor. And I'm like, oh, great. Can we just like drop off the cookies and then head back to this other lady's house and drop off some groceries for her? Sure. So we start doing that. And when we're there again, she's looking bad. So I'm like, oh, why don't you guys come to the park with us and play? Before we knew it, I had invited her over for pizza um, outside, of course, with six feet of distance and masks. (laughs) But um, and afterwards, Carl was like, that's not what I wanted. Like, you know, I feel like you didn't ask me. So it was totally my fault. It was a misunderstanding. And there's always something like that. There's always a neighborhood need, a congregational need, a friendship need. And I'm more prone
3: to be like she'll she'll have a party. And you know because because of our guidelines here in Chicago, we, we had some people over, you can't have more than ten people and she'll think, oh my gosh who's not here that I wish I could have invited. You know, like she just, she always wants more, more connection, more people, more, you know. So
0: anyway, it was, it was a conflictual situation that we had to talk through. We then took it to our therapy appointment, you know, and then talked through it and talked about expectations. But are there are very simple things that happen like that over and over mm-hmm. um, on both ends, you know, with many different examples, but where if you're... Desire is to see transformation on a community and national level there. The need is always going to be present. And so you have to just say that need will be there tomorrow. Mm. And um, my spouse may not be, if I keep this up, you know? (laughs) Mm. Um, And the problem is, I don't know. I don't know how this is in every vocation or every discipline, but within kind of community development and community organizing and And church ministry, if the model has been males that are doing this, they typically um, have these patterns of just like, you know, but as a Latina, here's where the personality, as a Latina, as a Colombian mother, even if i wanted to abandon my family for workaholism there's a gene inside of my body that keeps <laughs> turning me back towards like i'm a bad mother i'm a bad wife i'm a bad mother i'm a bad wife i'm a bad and it will eventually lead me to like some better decisions and then the bad self talk i have to work out in therapy but um <laughs> it, it's just um the model is just like all for the mission you know and your kids get raised by someone else, you know, and and I just it's not in my Colombian body to do that, so it causes all this inner turmoil for me. That's mm-hmm. what I mean by that. Um, yeah, I and mean, my husband's that's... like, my husband's like, no, you need to come home.
2: You know? <laughs> yeah, shut it
1: down. Stop. I mean, you that's shut it down. I mean, that's essentially like why we started this project because it. That's also, the entire thing. It's like even looking in history, right? And you look back at huge change makers. And yeah, they like revolutionized our world, but then you look at their families and you're like, and what happened? You know, there's your family or there's your wife that's gone or um and so we've just and, been and- trying to like see is that really, really possible.
3: You know? Yeah, and and uh, I, I, I do say, um, I can't remember it's a book you read by female C- CFO CEO. Um, that was thinking, you know, people ask you like, oh, can Lean you have in. a family? What's it? Lean in. Lean in. Yeah. Can mm-hmm. you have a family? Can you have your job? Can you have all the things? And yep. she said, no. Yeah. <laughs> you you can't do all the things to the extent that you want to do them. There's just not enough time yep. in a day and not enough, um, capacity in anybody. And Sandra's a very high capacity person, but in anybody, there's not enough to do all the things. So where are you willing to cut kind of in what area, mm-hmm. but still pursue the goals that you're looking to pursue?
0: Yeah. And that's why the relationship is very important because, again, I, and I think there's engendered expectations for women to just kind of put up with it. Um, and in, in our case, it's me that's the driver and him that's the one that's like, so I'm always like, thank God my husband's a direct white man. Because if he wasn't, I would be like unhealthy and, are, and probably we wouldn't be married by now. Plowing but, through, um, plowing he's just through. Like, yeah. He's like, oh, those are eight great invitations. Which two would you like to pick? you know um which two would you like to pick because you can't get a doctoral you can't be in a doctoral program and be a pastor and run chasing justice and do and 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 you still have to be a mother and a wife so Mm -hmm. what are you going to give up Mm -hmm. let's put the post-its on the wall you know like (laughs) um so and he and the thing is i know he's for me like he's not jealous he's not he's he's for me but he's for all of us, and yeah. so he's like, "I want you to do the best thing that you're supposed to be doing." So let's let's just do a flow chart and figure this thing out, you know. Like, mm-hmm. um, but if it wasn't for his insistent like project management on my life, um, I think we definitely would not mean it wouldn't be good.
3: Yeah, I, I, I learned <laughs> I learned something in agile software development. You know, if 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 you fir- if at first you don't succeed, redefine success. Um, but the yeah you know, the <laughs> One thing we learn, you thinking of values, is how we measure things. And I know we keep talking to you guys because this is very something I very, love very it.
1: This is we're awesome. very passionate
3: about. But you know, um, even with Sandra's invitations, you know she she's looking at, oh my gosh, I got ten invitations and I gave up so many. Hmm. Um, so her, her perspective is, look how much I'm giving up, and my measurement is coming from well, how much are you taking on. So even just in, in something small like you know work tasks and kind of what we're signing up for. How we're looking at it is from two totally different perspectives, and mm-hmm. so you know it took us some time to realize that and uh, acknowledge. Okay, th- how does it make you feel when I you know ask this? How does it make you feel when I say this, et cetera? Because they you're just you're looking at it the same thing, just from to- two totally different perspectives.
0: And because I am a woman of color, it took me a decade and a half to build my platform, whereas mm. a white man with less experience than me is already out there saying. Less things and getting more platform. That's just the reality of our racialized society. So I feel like, look, look, sir Carl. <laughs> yeah, I worked. I had to get two degrees and be in ministry for two decades for someone to actually take me seriously. So now that I get these invitations, I'm taking them. You know, I mm. can't afford not to take them because. So I, I have, and none of that is true. Like, I mean, the pain is true, but the scarcity yeah. is not true. But mm-hmm. I'm operating out of like, uh, I, I'm I've worked so hard. I've had to climb so hard. I've had to work so hard that someone with literally less experience and less knowledge and less credentials than me is being asked to speak on something they have no business speaking on just because they have a friend you know in, in a high place. and now I'm finally here and you want me to stay home mm. mm-hmm. um, So there's there's all of those things that we talked about earlier, all those things are driving yeah. some of which is why you have to look at what you're bringing into the relationship. Yeah, and and yeah. Carl has to understand that that's a even if it's a lie and it's false, he needs to be sensitive to that, to that, that pain that's operating in me. Yeah. yeah. Cause
3: I, I, that is not at all my experience. So there's nothing in right. me. I'm not a very intuitive person in general. And then there's no life experience that would lead me to understand like, Oh, this is probably what's going on for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mm-hmm. I was really helped by Adrian pay wrote a book called the minority experience. He talks mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. What, what it's like being a person of color in you know, majority organization. And when I read it, He talks about pain, power, and past—the kind of the three Ps as a framework Mm -hmm. for understanding what it's like. And when I read it, I'm like, Sandra, this is like 15 years of your life, like explained with bullets. You know, because I'm—I, you know, that's how I operate. I think in bullets. So, um, you know, it's just Mm. the the cons. I need a constant reminder, and because my environment is such, where there's lots of people like me, even if it's a diverse setting, the culture and the environment is is kind of akin to what I would use to or how I would navigate well so it's it's a regular i guess need for me to mm-hmm. adjust my expectations my lens my you know whatever to understand how how is some how is my wife who i love very much how is she experiencing this differently yeah. is this mm-hmm. just going to a work function for some drinks and a good meal or does this represent something more
1: yeah
3: you know based on that
1: yeah
2: and good. and the responses i guess in addition that you still can't
3: do everything
2: Right, like there's there's no possible way to do all the, to take the responsibility of speaking at every single possible thing that you could get invited to, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like there's there there is limitations in it in some way too that you have to realize, right? Yeah, it 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 seems like the two of you combined make actually a really good decision making. You're a good
1: team, like you see it (laughs) so well. Good team, guys. Good job.
3: (laughs) <laughs> thank you, thank oh, you. you. We're, we're very we're very grateful for many mentors in New York in Seattle in Chicago in, in uh, many in, in Uganda <laughs> and many other places um, that have kind of helped speak into our life and model things for us um, yeah we wouldn't be here without them they're just there's Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to name drop on here but there's just so many people I'd say thank you to so.
0: yeah
1: that's great
0: <laughs> and think... we really love love we oh, yes just really love love yeah. so we want, we we, we want to work. Um,
3: Not just like I do something nice for you, but like strong feeling love, like deep <laughs> emotions, intensity, <laughs> like
1: the good yeah. kind of love.
2: And now it's time for the breakdown.
1: Wow, that was a lot. It was good.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is like one of those ones I feel like I need to, like I don't want to be too quick to unpack. I actually want to listen more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It had a lot of kind of similar themes to you and I story in a bit, you know, um, as like when she talks about herself as a white presenting Latina,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, it's often how I feel very commonly too. Um, even though, um, I'm not fully, truly Latina, but, there's just a lot of that cross-cultural part and the differences in their marriage that are very similar to ours hmm. and what we had to unpack in our first few years.
2: Yes. you All those things she was saying <laughs> that she didn't want from him. Like, that was
1: my list. Money, I literally... It was like the exact same list.
2: Whatever all the things were.
1: Remember? Because I didn't even want to date you because I thought you were just like corporate America which was like everything I despised. Remember that?
2: Oh, I remember.
1: (laughs) Anyways, I had that same list. And uh, yeah.
2: I love this question that I think she asked, how do we understand what we have brought into this family? Like taking time to really consider our own individual cultural heritage, whatever that looks like, And what we're bringing to that relationship, you won't be able to kind of combine those cultures until you understand probably your own culture Mm -hmm. and, um, and a realization of that. Like we all come with certain forms of, I don't want to use the word baggage, but certain forms of a story that shape how we see the world. And once we, we can't come to grips with anyone else's story until we really understand our own.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I really love also how she is really trying to form like an integrated lifestyle of justice Mm -hmm. and how that is flowing through their relationship with their kids, raising kids who care about justice, but how it all integrates together, I think is so important. And just, I mean, a challenge, right? Like that's, that's something you got to work on intentionally.
2: She referred to this idea of so much of kids, the things that people the kids think and do and operate is caught by watching. And I think I think we all have friends that we have seen replicate their past generations. They saw something, they do it the same way. They haven't even taken the time to process what they think believe and determine what is true, and then we're replicating it again and again and again and again for generations. Mm. And I do believe we are in a moment right now where we have the opportunity to create and edit and cause a new story for our children.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's not about what we teach them; it's about how we live, and they will catch that and they will replicate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think
2: they're a great shining example of of that. Like, how do we live in community with people different than us? And actually shape what it means to be kind to our kids and and anyway and operate in a different way.
1: Yeah, and show that the flourishing of all humans matters, right? I mean, that's ultimately what we want our kids to see one day. And then that has to be shown through modeling. Yes. Yeah. Oh my goodness, it's so good.
2: We could keep talking about this for a long, long time.
1: But in this day, in this time, this podcast is important. And so um, if you or your friends or anybody who is listening right now where you are struggling with how to integrate your kids in social justice issues or just talking and having these conversations right now, um, pass this podcast along, send it along to them and have a conversation about it because I I think they are great, great teachers of how to do that effectively with our kids.
2: And that's another episode of Love or Work.
0: This episode was produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.